Hello everyone, welcome to the Uninformed Handball Hour. We're early doors in this World Championship, but a hell of a lot has already happened since our second preview pod. We've lost a couple of teams, we may have lost another. We've had cats, we've had big-ass line players, and we've had a couple of surprising results as well. On the pod, we've got Alex Kulesh. Hey, Chris. And Brian Campion, after his short vacation, is back on. (laughs) Hi, Chris, and hi, Alex. Early doors in the championship. It's happening at a fast pace, though, with eight games every single day, so we won't get bogged down on the individual results in this pod. We'll try and talk uh, talk about some of the, the most interesting stories But before we get into that, we have to let Alex Kulesh wax lyrical about his love for COVID procedures in Egypt. (laughs) COVID procedures in Egypt. Um, That's a it's a fun topic, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) Something that hasn't gotten too much attention so far. So I think it is good to talk about it. I think the world doesn't have a a good insight onto COVID these days. So nice to hear another opinion on it. (laughs) But it it, it was definitely a, a rocky start for the tournament. But I have to say before every we kind of go on that I think Egypt has done a very good job in responding to a lot of the criticism it got early on. There was talk about bad testing procedures as teams arrived. They implemented a new testing procedure. There was talk about, you know, about the fans, that the decision to have fans was a bad one. They decided that the best way for the tournament to go on was without fans. So th- they've made a lot of um, key decisions during the start of this tournament. M- my <laughs> only thing is that maybe they should have made those decisions a little bit earlier. And the fact that we had teams arriving to Egypt a couple of days before going through a tr- test procedure without any sort of longer quarantine, I think that that is the biggest risk to the tournament. So far, it's been okay. It hasn't been okay for the US, who uh, unfortunately got 18 cases of um, COVID during their training camp in Denmark. And while they had a testing procedure, they really focused on the quick test. And I've had personal experience with quick tests that haven't um, come out very well. My, My girlfriend got COVID. She got a quick test. It said she was fine. And a PCR test two days later said that she did have COVID. So it is something that probably should have been thought through where the COVID tests have a very good, the quick tests have a very good, if it is positive, then you're almost sure to be positive. But if the level of infection is very low, the PCR test is the way forward. So unfortunately, the US got into that bad situation and had to pull out. They were actually the second team that had to pull out of the competition after Czech Republic got 11 cases and could not continue. But this was fantastic news for North Macedonia, who got a chance to playing this tournament and for Kirill Lazarov to play across four decades continue his big legacy. Unfortunately, that that hype was uh, a little bit shortly lived with their performances. And the latest cases, of course, Cape Verde. And I think that's the 
I know the biggest risk around all this, the fact that a team with COVID cases was allowed to participate, was allowed to go inside the bubble. They had cases before and got more cases. So they got seven cases before they arrived to Egypt and got two more during their first games. And their first game against Hungary, Hungary made a very wise decision probably by only playing players with antibodies. (laughs) in their system for that game. Uh, probably one of the con- only countries who have that capability. Uh, but they, <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a good tactic employed by the <laughs> Hungarian authorities uh, within the team. And it, it is a big risk because yeah. the, the bubble has technically been compromised. And it's a very sad story. And Cape Verde had to pull out of their game against Germany. And we'll see if they can play their next game against Uruguay or uh, they'll exit the competition. People listening don't need us to tell them how... These cases could could multiply throughout the bubble uh, over the coming days and weeks because of people getting infected without it showing on the on the tests. It remains to be seen how we'll progress in that way. And it was a lot of negativity at the beginning. And, uh, you know, we were maybe a bit naive, Alex, you and I, when we were talking in the last podcast about because the testing procedure was or the whole uh, hygiene concept was supposed to be the same as the EHF, that if they implemented it properly that it would be a fairly secure bubble it clearly wasn't implemented properly at the beginning and although improvements are being made now and i'm I'm hearing that the conditions in general in egypt are much improved over the last few days um even the likes of bob hanning from the german handball federation has said that like you know it couldn't be any better in europe if you tried right now that wasn't the case at the beginning Uh, and so yeah it's a, a game of catch up a little bit for the the host nation, which is a pity, and it's a situation where you can't be catching up. It had to be there right at the start. And, you know, as you said, teams coming in a day before the championship, two days, in Switzerland's case, hours before their first game is not ideal. Yeah, time will tell. When you think back to the the Euro and we had three or four cases and people were losing their minds and compared to this now, that seems like, I mean, I remember during the Euro, there was news articles going around about a Portuguese cameraman at the Euro. And that was like breaking news. But now you hear Cape Verde with, and the US with 18 cases and Cape Verde with more cases every day. You really do feel like they're, they're skating on ice big time. And only time will tell, as you say, Chris, whether they're going to need a lot of luck almost, I think, to not have another group of cases come out. So fingers crossed, really. But um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of people sweating at the moment. Every time you get a new batch of results coming in, they must be thinking, oh, God, is this uh, is this curtains for another team, maybe? Let's focus on the handball then, as the tournament is progressing so quickly. We won't focus on individual results so much, but rather on the, our favorite stories from the opening few days. And there's been a hell of a lot of stories from these opening few days. So, so Brian, what's your favorite story or a match or a moment from this championship so far? I was hoping to go last because I wanted to have something a little bit different because I think there's some very obvious picks like uh, Japan drawn against Croatia is probably a big one. Brazil. Uh, uh, don't, t- don't tell us all of them. No. <laughs> no. So here's my top. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. One. Go for one. Okay. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> Give me the, the Reader's Digest. Okay. <laughs> My favorite moment actually is, I would say it's a, it's a moment in, in per se, but it's maybe a team, all right? And I think Portugal have been really impressive uh, in my eyes. 
When you think back to the last Euro and they they were playing in, the, in that Euro for the first time in 14 years, and now they're here at this World Championship, and it's al- almost like within that space of time, they've almost become like a proper team to be reckoned with, you know? And they've beat Iceland, and it wasn't even really that big news, and just kind of expected to see how far they've come so quickly. And then the second half performance against Morocco, where they really didn't play well in the first half and then they could put that behind them and then played absolutely incredible then in the second half. And it's I think it's unbelievable to see just the development of all those players and how all those players have really had the chance to play at this high level and they've really taken it on. That's just a story I'm really enjoying watching that develop over every major tournament now. Yeah, I like the Portuguese side a lot. You know, Miguel Martins was incredibly impressive in that opening game against Iceland and that game itself was uh there were so many layers to it because they were playing their third game against each other in eight days having played two euro qualifiers against each other like they had learned a lot about each other I think both sides maybe particularly Portugal were leaving a few things up their sleeve for that world championship game as well And, and as you said it wasn't really big news after they won it you know they even though it was a close game they seemed somewhat in control uh throughout it and yeah, the squad is uh, set up really, really nicely. There are some incredibly exciting players in there. I think once we get to the main round, a player like Andre Gomez, who we've spoken about uh, quite a bit on this podcast, is uh, is going to have a huge opportunity to really stamp himself as like a world-class player. Exciting to see where they can go in this championship, particularly considering the teams uh, in their quarter of the draw with uh, Norway and France in there as well. Yeah, and I think Norway will be kind of shaking in their boots a tiny bit looking at Portugal. And, and who would have thought that uh, a few years ago? So I think I think we all love Portugal on this podcast anyway. <laughs> For my story, my big story, I'll, I'll go with one of the most hyped players in this championship. And it has to be hashtag El Gigante. Guthier Muvumbi for Democratic Republic of Congo really blew up on the internet due to his 110 kilo frame. And I'd say, ah, is it I'd say that, 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 that uh, estimate from the IHF page is probably a, <laughs> a little bit off. I'd say he could be closer to 130, 140 kilos. Just a massive guy playing in the fourth division of France and getting this opportunity to shine at the biggest stage. And, you know, a lot of talk have been said, you know, this is this big guy, you know, go on, stick it to him. Well done. But he also played very well. He scored four goals from four attempts in his first game. He's a real feel-good story. This is the early stages of world championships are all about these uh, lower nations trying to really show what they can give. I think Cape Verde could have been one of those big stories if uh, something that, uh, if the kind of COVID situation didn't happen to them as well, where, you know, they, they had the hashtag ready to roll out, hashtag Blue Sharks. But, uh, you know, Mavumbi with his shout out from Shaq, so, which was a fantastic moment. They say you're the Shaq of Team Handball. What's happening? Where big man celebrates big man. So Mavumbi, the the Shaq of Handball, is a pretty good tagline to go away from a a tournament for a fourth division French league player. And and secondly, a story that I'm very surprised by, and that is the performance of Russia in this... Sorry, of the Russian Handball Federation in this tournament. (laughs) Because... (laughs) <laughs> Due to the 
banned from the Olympic Council, Russia cannot be represented at any Olympic level events and world championships. So they are the Russian Handball Federation in this championship and they have a fully revamped team, completely turned around. Young guns like Kiselev and Kosorotov have been absolutely outstanding. They've shown no fear and it's it's a nice step change. It feels like Russia have been stuck in a transition period for so long. Like guys like Garbok and Dibirov have been around for so long. And eventually it is time to move on. And it's nice that there is a bit of a push for the Russian Handball Federation in this tournament. I'm happy you said that because that was actually my second choice. And I was reading an interview with uh, Velimir uh, Petkovic, the coach who took over uh, last March. It's actually his first time ever to coach an international team, which I thought was quite interesting. And he said when he walked in to meet the squad on the first day, he said he really couldn't believe the the attitude and the atmosphere in the team and in the squad itself. He said nobody was talking before the training. No one would talk in during the breaks. It was all just kind of quite silent. And he said he had to almost shake that out of them and tell them this is not the way it's going to be. This is not the atmosphere in the team I'm going to have. And he goes, that's the first thing he started working on, that he tried to create this atmosphere. And when I was watching the Russian games, I was thinking, this, this, this doesn't look like a Russian team of the past. They just seemed really up for it. I think we were talking about it during, uh, during one of their games, and we were saying, God, they're really fired up for this. And it, do, it, did, it does really seem like they have been revitalized in a lot of way. And I think he can probably take a lot of um, credit for that. And uh, yeah, they're actually unbeaten also under Petkovic at the moment. So that's uh, also quite interesting. So what's your moment, Chris? On Gautier and Vumbi, the scary thing is like the three of us could probably at some point or now be playing fourth division French handball. Is that a guy you'd like to be coming up against on the line? (laughs) (laughs) I've always been a fast-breaking line player, so uh, I I think I could outrun him on a fast break, but I don't think I'd hold him defensively. (laughs) I mean, his footwork as well. It's it's a sight to behold, you know. Uh, It's brilliant. Uh, My... Favorite moment of the championship so far was the six o'clock throw-offs on Friday evening. And that was the first time we had four matches on at one time. And what a diverse spectrum of games we had. But I'm going to focus on two games in particular. The rise of the non-Europeans. And that was the the two 29-29 draws where we had the uh, last year's AHF Euro finalists, Spain and Croatia, being, I wouldn't say held to draws. In fact, they rescued draws, both of them, scoring an equalizer in the last 10 seconds. And it was Spain against Brazil. And we all know from this podcast that you absolutely love Brazil, Alex, but uh, people who are following us on Twitter will have noticed on Sunday that uh, you're also hopping or you're leading the Japanese bandwagon now. Where did you get that jacket from? Uh, It was a gift um, that I got for Christmas, an Olympic uh, Japanese handball team jacket from, I would say, about 20 years ago. Um, that was somehow found online. Amazing. And it's it's a beaut. And Japan have just been incredible. I think the most fascinating thing about this is not just any European teams being uh, held to a draw or rescuing a draw against uh, Brazil and Japan. It was the two top teams in Europe last year. And two teams that, from the number of predictions we got it from experts, were 
real medal contenders, like Spain and Croatia. And the Spain versus Brazil game in particular stood out to me because Brazil had a great start. And you can understand that that happens. And, you know, they're, they're playing without Thiagos Petras, arguably the, one of the best, if not the best defender in the world at the moment, but still had a solid squad. As we spoke about in the preview podcast, they, they are established, a lot of them playing in Europe. But then Spain took over the game opened up a six-goal lead in that second half, yet Brazil managed to find a way to come back. And I think that is incredibly impressive as well because it's one thing opening up a lead and then just holding on, but to find that second wind in the second half to, to come back and almost win was so, so impressive. And I'm really fascinated to see if they can actually turn this into proper points into the main round. And overall, Group B is an absolute bloodbath. We have seen four teams absolutely take chunks of each other over the the first two rounds. Um, it's been surprising because I don't think anyone expected Poland to be that good, but they got a win against Nizia and really um, could have scraped a win against Spain as well. And we're at the stage where going into the last round of games in the group, we could see every team in that group finishing on three points and then going into a mathematical equation as to who actually goes through. Yeah, then this, unlike most handball major championship tiebreakers, this one should be quite easy because it's purely goal difference, overall goal difference, (laughs) because they're all head-to-head games in that case. And so what, you have Poland and Spain who are both plus one goal and... Uh, Brazil on zero and then Tunisia minus two so okay yeah literally anything can happen in this group and I'm glad because it fits in well with what I was saying before about Brazil thinking that they could quite literally win or lose against any of these three teams and well let's talk about the games that happened on Sunday night because or Sunday evening because like particularly the end of that Brazil and Tunisia game was just wild an absolute nightmare for the Tunisians who, after doing so well to put themselves in a proper winning position, threw it away. Absolutely. And it had to be one of the stupidest shots we have ever seen in a world championship. Uh, and that was taken by Sanai for Tunisia with 15 seconds left on the clock. Tunisia with one goal up. He received the ball close to the six-meter line. Two defenders came to him. And instead of looking to his right, where there was two free Tunisian players to pass to, he decided to shoot around the two Brazilian defenders. And that was obviously saved very easily by the Brazilian goalkeeper and sent up for a fast break to level the game at 32-32. And it wasn't even like a real shot. He was literally standing. It wasn't even like a running standing shot. It was just he stood there with no uh, momentum behind him and just side-armed it straight into the goalkeeper. And I don't even think the hand was up by the referee. No. I actually think that he could have... He could have just stood there for 15 seconds and won the game for Tunisia. (laughs) He decided to be a hero. Exactly. You know what he was going through his mind. He's like, yes, I'm going to get the last goal. We're going to win by two and I'm going to be a fucking hero. And he just just absolutely panicked. I, I don't know what that shot represents more. Like glory hunting 
unnecessary glory hunting or panic but whatever it was i'm sure you saw the scenes afterwards because there was a lot more drama than at the end if you haven't seen it go and watch the final 30 seconds of this game the rest of the game not so important final 30 seconds amazing because after brazil go and equalize Tunisia go down the other end of the court they still have time for a shot and an absolutely wicked shot taken by the right back Ben Abdullah he whipped it off the underside of the crossbar and onto the line bounced out and the referees smartly enough decided to check whether it had crossed the line or not because at first glance it looked like it had crossed the line and then when he looked at the replays over and over again, he realized that it hit the line directly down. It took a moment for the referees to check the video. Somebody somewhere gave the Tunisians the impression that the ball had gone over the line and that they had won the game. So for a while, they were celebrating wildly and then they stopped celebrating. And then the, the referees made the decision that it had not crossed the line. No goal. 32-32 draw and absolute devastation for our friend the glory hunter and that would have given tunisia a really good chance now they have to go and beat spain to give themselves any chance and um well not impossible the way this group is going and i'm not going to make any predictions at this stage <laughs> we're just going to enjoy the games on tuesday and the complete opposite of that uruguay who have lost two games by over 25 goals might get through to the main round if cape verde cannot field a, a team for their last group game against Uruguay. Not all groups are made equal in this World Championship. But yeah, that's the joy of Egypt 2021, that's for sure. Then Japan, I mean, where did they come from? You spoke about them as one of your hipster teams, Alex. And, you know, I was thinking, yeah, okay, they might... They might be able to beat Angola, but two years ago, they finished last in the World Championship, losing to Angola in that 23rd, 24th place playoff, a team who, as we know, couldn't even run anymore. And somehow in that time, Dagger Sigurdsson has continued to work with these guys and continued to build them up into a team which that, that game against Croatia was really, really impressive. Yes, they lost against Qatar in their second game, but that was a really good match as well. And Qatar, uh, we're seeing, are, are not messing around, even though they haven't got their best squad. Still a very decent team. Not only are they incredibly enjoyable to watch, incredibly fast, but you know they're not going to be physically overawed either. Exactly. I, that's what I was going to say, is that I've been so impressed with the physical condition of the Japanese players. So they're not the tallest team, but again, they're not, also not very small they have some tall players in there close to two meters no one over two meters but they they look like they've put in the hours in the gym and i think that is where they came from the fact that they've been training for an olympic game they have one of the best coaches in the world leading them guiding them and they're all together so even for this world championship they started a training camp at the start of december so they were together as a team for a month before the World Championship. And that's why they came out against Croatia just absolutely sharp. And their style is incredible. They work on this concept of a numerical advantage all around the court. And the reason why I didn't use the word overlap in this is in handball, usually you move from one side and try to get advantage on the other side. What Japan do is... 
they don't just try to get it on one side, they move it from side to side, whether it's a pass from the right back to the left wing, or, you know, they, they move it and they can see the defense moving in front of them. And they just play these lightning fast passes to wherever they seem to have a numerical advantage. And they just break through. They've just been ripping through defenses. They ripped through one of the defenses, uh, one of the best defenses in handball, which was the Croatian defense. They just absolutely ripped through them. Of course, they have the disadvantage of not having a big shooter. Uh, and that's going to be with them for uh, for a long time, I think. And when that's why the, the better teams can come back and probably why they they weren't able to pull out full wins is that just sometimes in handball you need a big guy to take a shot from 10 meters and bail you out and and they don't have that but it's incredible to watch they're just a really really fun team and i'm yeah i'm as i said i'm fully on the bandwagon of japan and just going back to your initial moment where you're watching the six o'clock games I had a dual screen for Brazil, Spain, and Japan, Croatia. And in those last five minutes, I was just overwhelmed. I couldn't, because I was also kind of trying to text or be on Twitter. And I, like, huh? I had to sit down afterwards and just, <laughs> just chill out <laughs> after that. And, and change your jocks. <laughs> that, that was done at halftime. <laughs> I won't say it again. I won't say it again. I won't, I <laughs> <laughs> but that Qatar uh, Japan game actually was for me uh, surprisingly one of the more entertaining games of the of, that I've seen so far. I think it was a, a very interesting style matchup, and, I, and I, as I was watching it, I was thinking, do you know what? I think maybe Japan style suits to play against a team like Croatia better, where you have these bigger kind of uh, characters because they play so quickly. It didn't suit Croatia playing against them, if you know what I mean. But Qatar, I think, have probably looked better, or probably the best I've seen since they had that home world championship um i was surprised by them how good actually they looked at for certain parts they struggled with the 5-1 japan put them on put on them late in the second half but the they needed they had that character that japan don't have probably like Saric, who has all that experience to just come on and make that save at the end i mean it was kind of flashbacks seeing uh, Saric make that save yeah i mean that's that that probably did uh win the game for them because uh, they they had that penalty there was what a minute left it would have equalized and uh, in the end uh, a very important win for Qatar. Now, Brian, I know you have about nine other big moments, so give us one of them. It was funny because you were laughing at me, me starting to give a list there, but then you give a whole section of games. I was like, that's kind of a list as well. But anyway, that's a, that's a story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, instead, instead of me giving a list, I'm just going to kind of throw some general questions I have about some questions that are floating around in my head when I was thinking about the podcast earlier, okay? Let's start with France, maybe. Do you think people... People read a little bit too much into maybe France's motivation or what they looked like in terms of motivation playing against Serbia in those two qualification games and kind of ignored the roster that actually was in front of them. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was kind of the the main part of the discussion we had with Kevin in our last podcast because it was like wrangling the, yes, they looked like they really don't want to be with each other. But at the same time, look at the squad. And it was really this like Jekyll and Hyde situation where they could go crashing out early doors or they could go and win the world championship. And um, what Kevin said, there needed to be someone there to drive that team and take over. We had that in the, their first game against Norway. And for me, that was Kanto Mahé. He quite literally set the tone. What did he score? The first four goals of the game for France. And uh, yeah, he 
you know, from from going uh, being the second or third choice left winger for Vesprem to being the the star of the team for France in just a, a matter of two weeks is uh, is incredible stuff. So I don't know. People did read into it a lot, but I think it was fair enough because it, it was a major issue for this French team. And I would like to think that we don't we shouldn't read into that first game against Norway too much either, because that Norway team, um, well, they didn't have Christian O'Sullivan, who is absolutely vital um, for that team. And they have already lost backcourt players like Magnus Rood. And it, it felt like it was just Sagasin against France in that first game. And it, it kind of was, and he had an incredible game, but I don't think Norway were turned on to the extent that they should. And I'm actually not worried about Norway at all. I think they will just ramp up. And again, Christian Sullivan's back. They can just have Christian Sullivan and Sagasin there and win a lot of games. I, th- I think a lot of people probably hear us talk about Christian Sullivan. And, you know, I heard the Norwegian commentators last year at the Euro talk about him. And they're like, what are you talking about? I, I think he's a guy who... You, you don't know what you have until it's gone. And that was very much the case for Norway against France because he is just the guy who ties it all together. I wouldn't read into France's performance against Norway and say that, okay, this team is actually ready to win a world championship. I would think that they will struggle. They'll continue to struggle um, and have to pull out incredible performances to get further into competition and that matchup against Portugal becomes more and more intense. The, you know, the, the annual France-Portugal big game of the year. I don't see them going in there as hot favourites. The next thing I was thinking about then was um, you were saying, Alex, on Twitter that you fancied that Croatia should have a big tournament. And I was thinking the same thing. But now these problems with Sindrich getting the groin injury, Dovniak having kind of just recovered from, from COVID, Karacic is injured... Pavlovich is injured and now they've brought in Janko Kevic in from Nexa who is a very experienced centre-back but he's more kind of European league level maybe uh, comparison to the Champions League level of a centre-back maybe everything will be okay but that's the kind of big question for me will will the players around him be able to, to bring him up to that level or have this has this injury now really thwarted uh, Quirce's chances of making it to the final? I was initially quite skeptical of Croatia when I heard that Karacic might not make the tournament. So th- that's why I actually that's why I gave them a silver medal in my prediction. So that skeptical at that level, let's say, and they're still going to be good. And then I heard that Karacic was going to be fully fit for the tournament. And then I was thinking, come on, this this Croatian team is looking fantastic. But now we're in a situation where. Karaja is still out and now they've lost Sindrich. They need a huge step up from the two players I also mentioned before the tournament, Marcinovic and Jaganic, to be able to progress on this competition. And Jaganic actually didn't get selected for that first game, which was a big surprise for me. So I think Lino Charvar needs to lean into those two young players and give them the opportunity. If he doesn't and he tries to do it with kind of the, the set players like playing Chupich at right back um, like he did against Japan. I don't think there's a, yeah, 
a long progression for Croatia in this competition. 100% agree. I would be really surprised if Halil, Jaganjac and even Martinovic are not unleashed at some point and just given a chance to show what they're made of in the big games as well. Because if they're not going to do it now, then you know what's the point in even bringing them? Because I think they're they're definitely old enough uh, and good enough to be playing at this level. I just worry that, as you said, he'll he'll rely on seven or eight and a half players, and that will not be a good formula for this type of championship. I've one last pondering now, if you'll uh, entertain me for a minute. People are often talking now about to see this North Macedonian side and seeing it looks like the absolute change of the guard or a rough future for North Macedonia. Is this? Are we seeing a North Macedonian team now, which is going to end up being like the Austrian women's team um, of the '90s, that are kind of just going to disappear into nothingness, or is, am I just being too too hard on them? Judging on their performances in this tournament, it looks like a tough future for North Macedonia. They do need to move on from Lazarov. I know they 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 don't want to admit that, um, but he's also not the same player that he has been for them so i think he's been the core for them but almost like russia did where they just they need to drop these guys who have been their stars for a long time and try to focus on the future unfortunately the future generation after lazarov didn't have the stars that we hope to have so philip Teleski is the best example of that where he it always looks like he's ready to become a a star of world handball but he just doesn't get over the line so there's a bit of a gap in talent and if i was northern macedonia i would almost focus on a new generation try what korea did in this tournament send an under 23 team to a uh, to the next european championship but you know that the focus on the next generation instead of trying to squeeze out something from this the current generation try to invest in a new one and accept being a lower nation for a little while but there's enough focus on handball in the country there's enough people playing handball to allow them to kind of regenerate quite quickly i'm hesitant to come to any kind of wild conclusions about this team like when you look at the fact that there are players from Eurofarm Pelisters B team or second team in the squad it, it makes me wonder Okay, who's actually available for this tournament, for this Macedonian team, and is it actually their strongest team? Um, it's a bit of a weird mix of generations, like you said, Alex. But you know, you've got Metalurg and Pelister who were playing in the second tier in European handball. You've got Vardar, which seems to be a more uh, settled club at the moment, which is probably going to focus on Macedonian talent. So there are some solid clubs there that uh, you will have Macedonian talent coming through. And yeah, probably sooner rather than later, you'd want to make a full generational change and uh, blood those new younger players. So in conclusion, I, I don't think they'll turn into the next forgotten nation now. Because yeah, when you look at the squad list that they have now as well, they have seven players with plus 20 caps, the five players making their debut, and they have six players with less than 10 caps. So the, the team they have here is really, as you said, almost like the B team of some of the, the club teams that are there. But the extended squad then, and you look at the players outside of the squad who do have the caps. Okay, Maniskov is one who, who obviously they would they should have or would normally have here. But then after that, the, the players with the big caps are all really pushing like in a Lazarov direction. Mirkolovsky, he's 37. Rostovsky is 38. 
Georgiovsky's 33. He maybe has a few years left in him. Flip Lazarov, 35. You know, so a lot of those players who would have the experience then are all kind of, you know, as Alex said, they're maybe still trying to squeeze too much out of them. But uh, yeah, I think they're going to be, they're going to have a few rough years. But as you said, Chris, with the clubs that they have behind them, you'd imagine it's not just one club. They do have a few good clubs as well. You'd imagine there's enough there and the public interest. It's one of the biggest sports in the country. You'd imagine there's a lot of, there will be eventually a lot of good young players who've watched Lazarov as a child come through in the next few years as well you hope i have one last question to add to this and this is are egypt legit we'll find out when they play sweden a team by the way without going into it too much really like how sweden are playing bunch of young players playing with a lot of freedom clearly have the talent and i think they are going to be a real test for egypt so i think that will be the the proof in the pudding in that group final between sweden and egypt it's mixed it was very mixed I mean, the first game, um, I only saw parts of this first game, but it was kind of a mixed, bit of a mixed performance, you know, they didn't, I mean, which is obvious is going to happen when you play your first game of a home tournament, you're going to be nervous. And then the game against North Macedonia, handing them their biggest world championship loss ever I, I, with, this, with that kind of squad. It, I don't want to read into that too much, but yeah, the game against Sweden is the, the massive test. And I don't know, I just have a feeling I'm not fully sold on them just yet. I think they're legit. I think they're really, really good. They played like a top European nation in their first two games, where they really took control of the game and against a weaker team. Of course, North Macedonia is grouped in that uh, for now, but they just took control of the game, never let it go. There was a comeback by Chile in that first game, but Egypt were completely comfortable despite that. And almost actually a, a little bit lackadaisical, in that first game to allow Chile to come back. And then they didn't do that in the second game. They just have very, very good players across the board. Yaya Omar has come in and just been very solid. And I think he has a few levels to go up. And a guy I mentioned before the tournament, Eldara, has been incredible. He's been one of the most perfect players in this competition. He got eight goals uh, out of eight shots. He's throwing assists and not turning the ball over. I think he makes them work really well. They have a really strong defense. They just look really, really good. And they look like they're up for a fight. They're physically huge. Mm. They're very strong. They remind me of a team like Veshbrem, where you look at each player and you just see their strength. And I think they're ready for a fight. And when they do come up against the big European nations at the top, they'll be ready for that fight, adding the kind of home nation element to them. My expectations are rising very steadily with them and they they started off quite high so I, i'm quite big on egypt yeah that's uh that's definitely that game on monday night between sweden and egypt is going to be a, a cracker i think i hope and uh, will tell us a lot but yeah i uh i think they are quite legit any other questions thoughts is matthias gitzel the best player of all time <laughs> I mentioned him in the preview podcast and you almost like disregarded it. Yeah, exactly. I, I wasn't expecting it at all. I wasn't even thinking that Denmark were going to give him that much of an opportunity. I thought they would stick with their right-handers at right-back and try to replicate the formula that worked for them before. But what they did was just throw him into the pot and he came out absolutely on fire. He's just very technically gifted. And uh, to be honest, I thought he was 
going to be too small to play that right back position. But that's something that I think he's been told his whole life. I think he, as an underage player, he was uh, something like 40 kilos and uh, still one of the best stars in youth Danish handball. Finally, Denmark have a top left-hander in that team. It completely balances them. He also is extremely good at going outside. Again, something that Denmark haven't been doing for a while. So I'm also very high on Denmark, but that's that's a kind of first game reaction type of hype that uh, I, I like to push away from myself. So uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go in on Denmark straight away. I, I do want to see how it, uh, it the tournament folds out. Yeah, I, th- I think that's important to to consider for, for most of these teams. You know, whether they've had a poor start like Norway or a fantastic start like like in. Uh, France's or Denmark's case it's very early doors and I think we can we can wait until the next podcast before reviewing our predictions for the the main round onwards another episode of the Uniformed Handball Hour is done and dusted a big thanks from me Brian Campion Alice Kulish and Chris O'Reilly we'll see you Friday just after the main round starts for more podcasting goodbye mm-hmm.